ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Welcome to Speaking Out. Mainly discussing land rights and economic empowerment. Aboriginal enterprises in mining, exploration and energy. to talk a little bit about uh, Indigenous constitutional recognition. With Larissa Berendt. It's a fresh view coming on ABC Radio. In relation to child protection specifically, we have a closing the gap target to reduce overrepresentation of Aboriginal children in care by 45% by 2031. If governments are serious, non-dependent on jurisdiction, if they were serious, it's my perspective that they really need to commit to systemic change through local partnerships, and I mean genuine partnerships between government and ACOs and the community. This must be to recognise the overrepresentation of Aboriginal children in child protection and the youth justice systems. We say it time and time again, but we need some commitment, we need some action to address it. The current system that we have is culturally unsafe. We don't have the range and the amount of Aboriginal community-controlled organisations working in this space that we need. Here in the Northern Territory in particular, we do not have an Aboriginal childcare agency or the equivalent. Reforming Indigenous Child Protection. This is Speaking Out. I'm Larissa Berendt. As you've heard on the program recently, Indigenous children remain 11 times more likely to be in out-of-home care than non-Indigenous children. The Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Child Placement Principle is a framework designed to promote policy and practice that will address these alarming trends. The defining purpose of the guideline is to recognise the importance of family, culture and community to the identity and well-being of children. What First Nations professionals working in this space agree on is the need for a collaborative approach to address the over-representation of Indigenous children caught up in the system. Now, I want to start by asking each of you to tell us a little bit about your family background and what drew you to working in this area. And I'll start with you, Natalie. I'm a Gamilaroiana. My family's from Bingra uh, in New South Wales, but I've basically lived and grown up and, and raised my own family here on Yagara country um, here in Mianjin, Brisbane. I've always worked in this space, mainly started off working as a researcher at the Death and Custody Monitoring Unit after the Royal Commission, sort of moved into the youth justice space and then child protection. And the thing I'm most passionate about is the rights of our children and young people. And so Regardless of the space that I've worked in, that's kind of been what's drawn me to it and then what's kind of kept that fire in my belly. Great. And what about you, Nicole? I'm a Wadjigan Larrakir and Arundel woman from the Northern Territory here, so my family and connections span right from the top down to the bottom. I have worked, like Natalie, in this field for the majority of my career, working across child protection, out-of-home care and youth justice. I am a descendant of a stolen generation. My grandmother was removed from her mother and community at a very young age as part of the government separationist policies at the time. And like Natalie, that's what's given me the drive to to work towards righting those injustices that our Aboriginal people, particularly Aboriginal children, have been faced with and challenged with and continue to be challenged with. And what about you, April? I'm Marilyn Gugatha from the far west region of South Australia and I live and work on Ghana country. My background by profession is social work, so I had my early career in child protection work 
and that led me to opportunities of working in the Aboriginal foster care space, working with Uncle Brian Butler, who was a national leader at the time in SNAKE as the chairperson. And I got to work in an organisation called the Aboriginal Child Care Agency, which was established to combat the high numbers of Aboriginal children that were forcibly removed. Then I later worked in government in child and family development policy, in health, Aboriginal health. And what was really important for me in my work, I guess, was listening to the messages of the Aboriginal people, not only within my family, but within the sector that inspired me to improve outcomes for our own mob, specifically around our children and young people. And so from a personal perspective, when you know your own community has been subject to those policies and practices of forced removal, of segregation, your profession that is responsible for high levels of intervention and removal into Aboriginal children away from families. It really brings home your role and purpose as an Aboriginal person to combat those issues and to work arduously to bring about social justice. That's what drives me and inspires me daily. And getting into this role as Commissioner for Aboriginal Children and Young People was to continue that long fight that my predecessors have begun so long ago. Each of you represent a different jurisdiction. And I just want to dig down into what each of your individual roles are so we can get a sense of the similarities and differences in them. So, Natalie, what does your role as a commissioner of the Queensland Family and Child Commission entail? The Commission has a a systemic oversight function. So every jurisdiction, their their roles and and responsibilities vary slightly. Um, And so, you know, one of the limitation um, for us is, is not having that capacity to intervene in individual matters and being sort of limited to a, um, you know, a systemic oversight, you often feel like then a lot of the work is done looking through the rearview mirror as opposed to being able to actively see something happening in, in front of you, intervening to, you know, to make a real and tangible difference in that moment. And so in terms of oversight of systems, we we monitor um, issues like overrepresentation um, in the child protection system. And in many ways, I think the interpretation of our role has been that it's limited to those statutory systems. But the reality is, um, in order to make a difference, we have to actually exercise, you know, our role and functions in other sort of non-traditional spaces than the statutory systems. We have to be able to look at things like equitable access to universal and targeted support services. We need to look at education systems, at housing, all of the things that we know, if left unaddressed, actually drive families into contact with the child protection system. So using some creative license in some spaces, but but I think really um, we're driven to make an impact. And I think that what we've done is try to identify spaces in multiple systems where we can agitate for the most significant change for kids. I want to come back to you about some of the more specific issues in your jurisdiction, but Nicole, as Acting Children's Commissioner for the Northern Territory, can you tell us what your role is designed to do? 
As an independent statutory officer, I have particular remit in the Children's Commissioner Act here in the Northern Territory. There are two objects of that Act. One is to ensure the safety and wellbeing of vulnerable children. That's a very clear definition around vulnerable. And to promote continuous improvement in policy, practice and services to vulnerable children. So our office is responsible for dealing with and managing complaints about services provided to vulnerable children. We also undertake monitoring of the child protection legislation here, the Care and Protection of Children Act. We undertake inquiries relating to the care and protection of vulnerable children. And we also monitor the ways in which the CEO of the Child Protection Department deals with suspected and substantiated harm of children in out-of-home care. April, as Commissioner for Aboriginal Children and Young People in South Australia, your role is slightly different from Natalie's and Nicole's. Can you tell us about its scope? My role is also an independent statutory role and it is placed within the Oversight and Advocacy Bodies Act for Children and Young People in South Australia. My role has particular statutes that have powers of a Royal Commission that can enable me to conduct inquiries into systemic issues that have effect on outcomes for Aboriginal children and young people. My role is to also promote the rights and wellbeing of Aboriginal children and young people at a systemic level across key sectors to do with child protection, youth justice, health, housing... And what's really key to the role is the fact that the role can only be filled by an Aboriginal person. So it's, it's unique in terms of its role in South Australia, but I understand at a national level that it is indeed a role that has powers to conduct inquiries to the extent that it can influence outcomes and reforms in the way in which governments respond to inquiries. Natalie, oh, sorry. sorry and, Natalie. and I get to... Sorry, Larissa, no, but okay. I just wanted to add that the role also enables me to hear directly from Aboriginal children and young people and to amplify their voices on issues that matter to them and to also define priorities that come from the voices of Aboriginal children and young people, their families and communities. Again, I'd like to come back to you in a minute about some of the more specific issues in South Australia. But Natalie, just returning to you, from your perspective in Queensland, what are some of the key issues in your jurisdiction at the moment, particularly, I guess, your perspective compared to what uh, might be the media focus at the moment? I think there's there's been a lot of focus in, in Queensland over the last few years about significant legislative reform. So I think there was a lot of focus on implementing each of the five elements of the child placement principle, for example, bringing self-determination into the legislation, making some changes to best interests. They were really critical and really important reforms. I guess the biggest challenge that we're seeing, what, nearly five years later, is that that intent, that very clear intent of those changes is being diluted. And, and so it's sometimes difficult to find the evidence of that in practice. And so rather than the point of changing the law being the point of celebration, the point of celebration is when those changes result in 
real changes in the lived experience of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander children and families. And at the moment, I would say that's the exception rather than the norm. So there is significant amount of work to do to bring practice up to speed with the intent and the strength of the legislation. And I think that's something that in a state like Queensland and with the sheer volume of our children involved in the child protection system, there's a certain urgency that I don't always witness that I think needs to be put into making these reforms make a difference. Similarly, Nicole, in your jurisdiction of the Northern Territory, there's a lot of media coverage focused on Aboriginal youth and, of course, obviously been a range of issues that have come up, particularly around the Dondale Youth Detention Centre and the subsequent inquiry. So from your perspective, what are now some of the key issues that are priorities for you? The Northern Territory would have to be one of the most inquired and most analysed jurisdictions in this country at this point in time. We've had numerous inquiries. We've had the Royal Commission in 2017, all in relation to the delivery of child protection as a statutory service, and the Royal Commission in 2017 focusing in on youth detention as a result of some extremely concerning treatment of our children in the youth detention facilities and majority of those children being Aboriginal children. I have to agree with Natalie in relation to, you know, legislation change, policy change, practice change and reform that the departments across the country continue to embark upon. There is nothing that could better identify and better clarify for our kids the outcomes than policy change and practice change on the ground. April, for you in South Australia, what are some of the priority areas for you in your role at the moment? One of the key priorities is, of course, the removal of Aboriginal children, those alarming rates, and I'm conducting an inquiry into that very matter about how the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander child placement principle is applied to the removal and placement of Aboriginal children and giving regard to how prevention and early intervention measures are put in place and what level of effort is applied to the way in which resources are given into our Aboriginal community-controlled sector to support our Aboriginal children and families. What's really pressing for South Australia is that we've got the second highest rate of Aboriginal entry into out-of-home care. We have the highest rate of Aboriginal children on long-term guardianship orders for a very small jurisdiction. When you look at South Australia and how we are as a state with the population of Aboriginal children and young people, we also are concerned about the appalling reunification rates for our families to ensure that our children are returned back to family and community. What's compelling in all of this is that investment in early intervention and particularly intensive family support services are very poor. And so that expenditure is a concern when we're trying to achieve reforms for our Aboriginal children and families at a systemic level, that resources aren't put in the right places to support our families to ensure that we have a fulsome approach to any reform. We've got to get better at the way in which we 
carve up resources to support our most vulnerable. And that also means dedicating much more of our resources to the Aboriginal community controlled sector. But this inquiry is a deep dive into the systemic issues at a practice level, at a policy level and a legislative level. It's been timed um, at, a, at a moment in our history in South Australia where we have new legislation in child protection introduced as a result of the Nyland Royal Commission into the Child Protection Service System. And for us in South Australia, we have not seen the impact of that legislation produce the outcomes that we're desiring for Aboriginal children and young people. And so this inquiry that I'm conducting will examine, will examine all those systemic issues to turn the tide in outcomes for our Aboriginal children and young people and ensuring that the principle in the fact that it was designed to recognise the importance of safe care for Aboriginal children within family and culture. And so at this moment, in South Australia, we have a guardian for children and young people that is a woman of Aboriginal heritage, which sets us in a position to interrogate the system with rigour in terms of our Aboriginal children and young people. And core to all of this is that we need to understand that South Australia has often been seen as a jurisdiction that has pioneered progressive legislation and policy around Aboriginal children and young people and we have certainly not been that trailblazing jurisdiction for our Aboriginal children and young people and we need to remind ourselves about the rights of our Aboriginal children to remain connected with family and culture and the importance of the principle and how it was designed to recognise that just want to pick up on a point that you're making there. Obviously, uh, just listening to the complexity and uh, systemic nature of the issue of Aboriginal child removal in South Australia, but then also reflecting on the observations that Nicole and Natalie have made about their respective jurisdictions of Queensland and the Northern Territory. It is striking that child protection is a state based or territory-based issue, but in each of the jurisdictions there are similar trends in the increasing number of First Nations or Aboriginal children going into out-of-home care and other issues that you raised there, April, like the failure to implement or the lack of impl proper implementation of the child protection removal. From your experience and your observations, what are some of the factors that account for the fact that across every jurisdiction in Australia, we are seeing the same trends, even though there is different legislation, different departments dealing with the issue? It is multifaceted and my inquiry is unravelling that, but to also produce recommendations for what that model going forward looks like for our Aboriginal children and families. And when you understand that the application of the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Child Placement Principle, is how it's applied, really gives you an indication as to where some of the root causes are to this growing trend with our Aboriginal children and young people, the rates into out-of-home care. And those trends can be understood as to the issues of legislation, how that transpires into policy, into practice, 
in terms of the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander child placement principle. You need to understand that there is there are issues at a systemic level that can be described from my perspective as systemic racism in systems and in structures that struggle and are challenged to understand how the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander child placement principle is implemented. We have to embed it in legislation in its fullest form and understanding that in its fullest form that speaks to prevention and understanding that early intervention and early help is really important, understanding the requirements of effective partnerships with the Aboriginal community, particularly with the families and the Aboriginal community controlled sector and ensuring that we have a robust service system that is partnering and actually being led by our Aboriginal community controlled organisations in the way in which we respond to vulnerable children and their families and that the placement hierarchy itself is pivotal but it needs to be supported by prevention, by partnership. But the way in we partner with our Aboriginal communities ensuring that we fulfil Aboriginal self-determination in the way in which we keep our Aboriginal children safe with our families and addressing those key determinants in, in child protection. And that means there are things that are out of control of the child protection system as well that we have to have partnerships with other sectors in ensuring that we have better housing responses, that we have better responses with law and justice, that we have better responses in education, that we have better responses in the way in which the NGO sector, particularly our Aboriginal community control sector, is resourced and supported to lead in this way. And can I just say, Larissa, in regards to this growing trend, the evidence is really compelling when I speak about South Australia, you can see legislation that's been introduced and compare that with the legislation that was previously in place in South Australia. And the outcomes for Aboriginal children were supposed to have been addressed with a new legislation. What we can see is a remarkable and astonishing growth of Aboriginal children, exponential growth of Aboriginal children entering into out-of-home care and being placed in non-Aboriginal care. And what I'm calling for with my inquiry is to also call for a new model of a care and protection system for Aboriginal children and young people. Without preempting what that will look like, that so far as to say is that our reliance on and the government service system has been failing our Aboriginal children and families. And to understand that when we talk about continual failing of government and its service systems, then the expectation of resourcing continually going into those government service systems without seeing the change is making no sense. The evidence is before us as to where we need to disrupt and interrupt the state of play for our Aboriginal children and families. And that calls for a significant reform and transformation in the care and protection service system for our Aboriginal children and young people. You're listening to Speaking Out. 
just comes down to showing, sharing, you know, respecting. The world from an Indigenous perspective on ABC Radio. This is Speaking Out on ABC Radio, Radio National, Radio Australia on podcast and the ABC Listen app. I'm Larissa Berendt and if you like what you're hearing, why not rate us on your app and that way other people can find us and hear our stories as well. On the program this week, we're exploring the complexities of Indigenous out-of-home care and the work being done to address alarming trends within the sector. Right now, though, some music from Uncle Jimmy Little. When this place gets kind of empty Sound of the breath fades with the light Think about loveless fascination Under the milky way
It's Uncle Jimmy Little with his cover of the church song Under the Milky Way. And I have to say, it's one of my all-time favourites. Speaking out with Larissa Barron. The knowledge, the culture, the arts, the language, the law and customs of Indigenous people. On ABC Radio. My guests this week are Natalie Lewis, Nicole Hux and April Laurie. Nicole, another recurring theme listening to all three of you talk about the issues in your jurisdiction is that intersection between out-of-home care and juvenile justice. And again, these are two issues that are state or territory-based issues, but we see similar trends around the country in relation to both of those, not just the increasing number of children in out-of-home care, but the high number of First Nations or Aboriginal children in out-of-home care that you've all spoken about as a concern in your jurisdictions. From your experience and your observations, your work, what are your reflections on that intersection and, and why is that so systemic? In relation to child protection specifically, we have a closing the gap target to reduce overrepresentation of Aboriginal children in care by 45% by 2031. If governments are serious, non-dependent on jurisdiction, if they were serious, it's my perspective that they really need to commit to systemic change through local partnerships, and I mean genuine partnerships between government and ACOs and the community. This must be to recognise the over-representation of Aboriginal children in child protection and the youth justice systems. We say it time and time again, but we need some commitment, we need some action to address it. The current system that we have is culturally unsafe. We don't have the range and the amount of Aboriginal community controlled organisations working in this space that we need. Here in the Northern Territory in particular, we do not have an Aboriginal childcare agency or the equivalent. We have significant numbers of Aboriginal children in out-of-home care. This is 90% of the out-of-home care cohort are Aboriginal, yet we don't have one Aboriginal childcare agency focused in on delivering services. Another key commitment that governments must make is to long-term funding of services because we have these short-term funding arrangements which do not allow for the services to be able to engage and 
make the changes that we need with the background of uncertainty around that funding. So we need this funding commitment to take bold action against some of the reforms that are currently being run in jurisdictions and particularly the reforms that are focused on increasing a tough-on-crime approach, which the Territory has taken in recent times. We need to combat this approach, particularly as we're moving towards an OPCAT obligation environment where we're required to have greater oversight of the treatment of children in youth detention. And the third thing for me, and I'll continue to advocate, is that we need a National Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Children's Commissioner to advocate for the rights of our First Nations children to make sure that the overrepresentation of our First Nations children in the child protection and youth justice systems remain at the forefront of the minds of governments. Natalie, I want to bring you in on this. Obviously, really want to hear your thoughts on the systemic nature and the intersection of these issues of child protection and juvenile justice in your jurisdiction and with your experience and your perspective. And I just also wonder if you could add to that the importance of the kind of roles that you and Nicole and April have in relation to that. Starting with, I think, the significance of those types of roles is that it establishes a single point of accountability and and allows some type of transparency into a system that realistically, beyond monitoring and, and reporting on its own performance, like its throughput, doesn't really give us any clear vantage point into the safety and well-being of our children within that system. So I think it's really important to establish those points of accountability that are able to set terms of reference for how we look at the system, its performance and the outcome it produces for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander children, and to be able to report on that in an uninhibited way, to give clarity about the things that absolutely need to change. And when we think about that intersection between the Commonwealth and and the state, this space where there's this constant flick passing of, of responsibility. And yes, each of the jurisdictions hold the legislative jurisdiction for child protection and for youth justice. But when we look at a Commonwealth level, we ratified the Convention on the Rights of the Child over 30 years ago. But there has been a distinct lack of leadership and commitment at a Commonwealth level to actually translate that into the lives of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander children and to make good on that promise. So the things that are protected, the rights that are promised to all Australian children, so many Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander children absolutely miss out on those things. So I think there's a real need for the Commonwealth to demonstrate some some leadership about a commitment to embedding the rights of children into domestic law and to actually influencing through establishing national standards around the operation of systems like youth justice and child protection to adequately safeguard the rights of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander children that come into contact with those systems. Some of the changes, I guess, over the last couple of years through the national framework, yes, there's been an agreement for all states to, you know, progress towards legislating all five elements of the child placement principle. And I do still firmly believe that, but when those things are implemented to the standard of active efforts in every case, in every part of every state, by every practitioner, 
yep, adequate safeguard for the rights of children. But at the moment, it's hit and miss. They're still seen as these things that are just nice to do, that will focus on the participation of children if we get around to it. These are things that are rights and they need to be protected and upheld. And I think that that failure to see children as rights holders at a Commonwealth level, then within systems like youth justice and child protection, has absolutely disproportionately affected the lives and the life trajectories of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander children. My office, the analysis that we do for our annual report of child protection data and out-of-home care trends that we see in the Northern Territory particularly, it really identifies to me a critical need for a differential response for our families who are low risk but high needs. So we see this issue of cumulative harm so readily within the system where you have families subjected to notifications time and time again to child protection. They are investigated, do not meet the statutory threshold, but referrals are made and they necessarily don't engage with the services or the services don't pick them up quick enough before they're reported again. So for me, I think what's missing from the current reflection and conversation is the need to think about what are the services, where are those services and how many do we need to meet the need of our children and families in the Northern Territory. Majority of the child protection notifications received are in relation to neglect. That, to me, it points to an underlying issue around Aboriginal children and their families living below the poverty line. We know one in three children here in the Northern Territory live below the poverty line the current statutory system, by virtue of cumulative harm and the way that that operates, actually penalises our children. Nicole, in that scenario that you're talking about, I just wonder what are your reflections on the role of the community-controlled sector in that space and the need perhaps for capacity building? There is a great need for more services in the space and services that are delivering supports to families across the spectrum. We need universal access to services, that is parenting education, budgeting programs, generalist family support and housing support. We need our families to be referred and to be actively engaged by these programs so we can reduce the risk for those families and then reduce the risk of coming into the statutory system. What we see here currently in the Northern Territory is what I call this fast-track pipeline between child protection into youth justice. We have a large majority of the cohort of children within the youth detention facilities are children that have come to the attention of child protection or are currently still actively involved in the child protection system. That, to me, is concerning. Natalie, Queensland has a state-based treaty process that started and a truth-telling commission being established. Do you think those kinds of processes can make a difference to the work that you're doing? I think they can certainly make a significant difference. I think regard to the treaty process and also the truth-telling as an inquiry, the closer that we can get to the lived experience of, of people in different parts of Queensland, that will lay the foundations of whether or not those um, processes are in fact transformative or just a holding space or tokenistic. You know, I think that there's the potential for those to make a significant difference. But what we have to then recognise is that 
if we now start listening to our communities and when our communities are telling us that the current systems are incongruent with who they are, what their aspirations are for themselves and for their families, then we need to then as a state to be prepared to make those changes, not just to do window dressing on the existing systems. If we're hearing from children and families, which through our work in the Commission we absolutely hear already, but in public processes like truth-telling inquiries um, and in treaty processes, if that is what is told, then we need to be prepared to be, um, you know, to act with urgency and to accept sort of once and for all that perhaps the system we've got in place is not the right system for us. So if we can't work with communities to actually build support rather than just surveillance of families, then we are not going to be able to move families away from the attention of statutory systems. I absolutely agree with what Nicole's saying in terms of we have a similar profile of children and families in contact with the system here, largely as a result of neglect that is related to poverty. And I think that when it comes to poverty, that is a political choice. And so we have deprioritised as a nation for a very long time doing something meaningful about poverty. But at the same time, we've also made it abundantly clear, as we saw through that period of time of COVID, that when the rest of our of the population had that momentary glimpse into what is the vulnerability of many Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander families, the government was very quick to act. We didn't want them to experience those pressures of not knowing that they were going to have somewhere to live, not having to make choices about, you know, whether or not they could put food on the table. When we actually reacted and responded with compassion and with a real understanding about the economic impacts in our, in our communities and the experience of poverty, then we showed that we are absolutely able to do something meaningful about eradicating child poverty in this country. So I think it's a matter of actually prioritising. And if we are truly, through treaty processes and through truth-telling, listening to the lived experience of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander children and their families, then we should have no option left than to radically transform the systems as we know them. Just want to bring you in there, April. South Australia has announced a voice to parliament process and Attorney General Kyan Ma has also announced the start of an Aboriginal justice agreement process. From your perspective and where you sit, what impact will these types of initiatives have on the very important work that you're doing? Larissa, for me, that's the first time I've heard about Minister Kyan Ma coming up with a justice agreement. I'm not aware of that until you've just disclosed that, but I believe that will be an important um, instrument alongside South Australia's Voice to Parliament, which has been passed through Parliament and we are in the process in South Australia of moving to elections to get those processes in place. But for me, the, the mechanism of the voice is instrumental in harnessing the priorities from our Aboriginal community through the elected members about issues that need government's response in understanding what it is that is seen as priorities from the Aboriginal community of South Australia. I can only imagine that the voice will be such a key structure and mechanism that can do nothing but good to advance the rights of Aboriginal children and young people and address other issues that bring to bear on outcomes for our children and families. 
As I've heard from Natalie and Nicole, the issues that belie our Aboriginal children and families are complex and there are significant levels of issues related to neglect that can be tied to issues, obviously, of poverty with the overlay of complex and chronic issues related to domestic violence, alcohol and drug and substance misuse, untreated mental health and the concerns around poor housing and homelessness. So mechanisms such as the voice can get our people to drive those priorities and get a response from government to better outcomes for our families and communities. So for myself, I have no guarantee in the voice mechanism. I'm going to have to do my campaigning if I want to stand to be elected onto The Voice. But I have the powers within the role of the Aboriginal Children's Commissioner position to do such things to enable, as I'm doing right now, inquiry to bring about changes for Aboriginal children and families. What I do understand, if there was to be a justice agreement in South Australia, that... We are in a time we are challenging the governments of Australia at jurisdictional level, at a national level, about the lack of implementation of the Royal Commission into Aboriginal deaths in custody. This justice agreement with The Voice will enable us to provide that accountability and to keep on pressing on with the changes that are needed to correct the story of injustice in South Australia and indeed what might need to take place across in other jurisdictions and at a national level. I'm really aware we're running out of time, but I just finally wanted to ask each of you very, very quickly. I'm always in awe of how difficult and important the work is that you do. You're seeing some of the hardest cases and working with some of the most marginalised families in our community. And I just wondered if very quickly I could ask each of you where it is that you get your strength from to do this work. And although you're obviously coming off a period of being sick, April, so that says a bit in itself, I just wondered if you could share with us where you get that strength from. My strength comes from being a person who is from our Aboriginal community, who's immersed in her identity and who has seen gross levels of injustice, who has had to do her own fight to get where she is today and who has been in a position to see and hear directly from Aboriginal children and young people about their gross experience, their experiences of gross injustice. And all I want to do is commit my time and my energy to be part of a greater story with other Aboriginal people to get better outcomes for our children and families and to ensure that our Aboriginal children and young people, which include my children, to ensure our Aboriginal children and young people get to enjoy their cultural identity and being Indigenous with rights and they can prosper like every other child in South Australia and have that ability to thrive. 
Lovely. And Nicole, what about you? Where does your strength come to do this really important but very hard work? I don't know if it's strength. <laughs> like April, I'm dealing with a chest infection as well. Um, you might say that, you know, overrun, burnt out a little bit here. But I think for me, I feel an increased sense of accountability. Like I'm embedded in the community. I, like I said, I have family networks from the very top to the bottom of this jurisdiction here in the Territory I can't walk out in the community or around at a shopping centre locally here without someone saying, hey, I've seen the work that you've been doing, I'm glad you're in that position, etc. And so there's that level of accountability every which way I look. Then going back to my story about my grandmother, who is a member of the Stolen Generation, I remember when I first enrolled to undertake my Bachelor of Social Work, I had this really sensitive conversation with my grandmother. I was quite concerned about how she would react to me saying that I wanted to become a social worker, reflecting on the role that social workers played in the removal and the continued removal of Aboriginal children from their families. But she was quite supportive and she encouraged me and she was one of my biggest advocates whilst I completed my social work degree. And I think the other thing for me is... There's an accountability that I have to my two young daughters, three and five-year-olds. Again, that's why I'm run down as well. But I guess just as April said, you want the best for your kids. As a mother, bringing children into the world, you want the best for your children. And so whatever impact I can make, I will continue to do that. Amazing. And Natalie, what about you? Where does that strength come from for this very difficult but really important work? I agree with both April and Nicole. I don't think we have the luxury of being able to to switch off. I think that those obligations and those accountabilities, they transcend sort of your professional and your, your personal life. And I think in terms of being able to keep going, I mean, we've got, you know, such inspirational examples like of staunch women leaders in our community, like Arnie Deb Swan, you know, like Arnie Sue Blacklock, women that have persevered and pioneered in much tougher circumstances without the title, without the powers, but pretty pathetic to given the opportunity that I have to pack it up and, you know, and give up and say things are too hard when they've been able to achieve such great things for our children and families. But I think the other thing for me is that in the work we do when we're going out and, and, and meeting with young people and, and with families and community-controlled um, organisations and you get to see what's possible. So while we hear horrible stories, we read and produce reports, which we wish we didn't have to, in those moments when we're engaging with our community control organisations and we are seeing the profound impact that their commitment is having on the lives of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander children and young people and their broad families, I think that gives you inspiration because you know if that becomes the norm rather than the exception, then we will have a very different conversation in five years. So I think that's... Mm. Yeah, can I, I add to that, Larissa? Because, Natalie, you mentioned inspiration. Finding strength in the role of being a commissioner and working in this highly complex but sensitive and distressing area to do with child protection at this moment in my role, I'm inspired by what I hear directly from Aboriginal children and young people this radical optimism that things will get better, their voices about how they see themselves as 
taking on the baton and being the ones that will be coming through the ranks and our leaders of tomorrow, our elders of tomorrow, that will continue the good fight, but also acknowledging that their radical optimism means that they see the cup half full and that they have this level of energy to see themselves as being change makers is what inspires me and where I find strength as well. Well, radical optimism, what a wonderful note to finish this amazing talk on. Can I just thank you, Natalie, Nicole and April, for spending some time with us on Speaking Out to help us really more deeply understand the areas that you're working in and to actually thank you for the work that you are doing in this very difficult space. My guests this week have been Commissioner of the Queensland Family and Child Commission, Natalie Lewis, Acting Children's Commissioner for the Northern Territory, Nicole Hux, and South Australian Commissioner for Aboriginal Children and Young People, April Laurie. That's the show for this week. Join us again next week when we celebrate Indigenous Elders as part of NADOC 2023. This episode of Speaking Out was produced by Jay McAllister and Manel Creed. You can email the program at speakingout at abc.net.au and find us on social media via ABC Indigenous. I'm Larissa Berendt. listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.